This episode of We the People is brought to you by The Great Courses. The Great Courses offers engaging video and audio lectures from top professors and experts in their field. The Great Courses created a special, limited-time offer for We the People listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including The Great Debate, Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution, at up to 80% off the original price. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com people. That's thegreatcourses.com slash people. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week we conclude our series of blockbuster podcasts that reviews the week's big decision at the Supreme Court. This is the grand finale of a veritable constitutional drumbeat uh, leading up to the end of a truly historic Supreme Court term. On Friday, June 26th, the Supreme Court handed down a landmark ruling recognizing the right of same-sex couples to be married. And on the last day of the term, Monday, June 30th, the court announced an important ruling on the power of voters to reform the redistricting process through ballot initiatives. Joining us to analyze these two decisions are two superb constitutional scholars. Richard Pildes is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at the New York University School of Law. He is also the scholarly co-chair of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. And Michael Stokes Paulson is Distinguished University Chair and Professor of Law at the University of St. Thomas. He's also the co-author of the great new book, The Constitution, an introduction, along with his son, Luke Paulson. Uh, Professor Paulson came to the National Constitution Center on June 11th to talk about his great book, and you can check out the video of that session at constitutioncenter.org. All right, gentlemen, let's get right into it and begin with the same-sex marriage decision, Obergefell versus Hodges. Michael, can you tell us about the reasoning of Justice Kennedy's majority opinion uh, and whether or not you agree with it? Well, uh, Jeffrey, it's really an honor to be here. Um, the reasoning of the decision is somewhat unusual and unexpected. The decision itself was not at all a surprise. It's obviously an enormous, enormously important decision, probably one of the, you know, you described it as a landmark. It's probably one of the most important decisions the court has issued in some 20 years. Um, it upheld a national right to same-sex marriage, but it did so on a basis that I think might have been slightly surprising to a few people, and that is it relied on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which provides that no state shall deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Um, <clears throat> Kennedy has, in this opinion, with, uh, with the four members of the liberal bloc, embraced, again, because he's done it before, the doctrine of substantive due process, which has always been a highly troubling reading of the due process clause. The due process clause is about procedures, legal regularity, about lawfulness, you know, the government must act in accordance with law. To read it in a substantive manner as creating unenumerated rights has uh, many precedents in our nation's history, but they've all been troubled precedents, including the Dred Scott decision in 1857, creating a substantive due process right to extend slavery into the national territories. And then there was a whole period in the early part of the 20th century 
highlighted by the Lochner versus New York case in which the court upheld substantive liberty rights that really had no basis in the text of the Constitution against government regulations of commerce, industry, and labor of all sorts of times. Um, <clears throat> this decision rests primarily on substantive due process. Kennedy says there is a liberty right to marry whomever you choose um, that cannot be restricted to opposite-sex couples, and that the meaning of liberty and freedom and these sorts of things, and the, the, the opinion is full of lots of, oh, I guess you would say expansive rhetorical uh, uh, tributes to liberty. Um but the the reasoning was that the idea of freedoms must expand and uh, evolve over time, and that that embraces now a right to same-sex marriage. This is not too surprising a decision for Kennedy, because back in 2003, in the decision of Lords versus Texas, he embraced a similar theory as a defense against criminal laws prohibiting uh, homosexual sexual acts. But this is quite an, uh, a step beyond that. But, but again, it's not unexpected because of the 2013 decision in the United States versus Windsor, where Kennedy wrote again for the same 5-4 majority, striking down the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, which had restricted as a matter of federal law marriage to one man and one woman. So it's quite a sweeping rationale, and that produced really quite sweeping dissents from each of the four more conservative justices. Um, <clears throat> Let, let's talk about those dissents in a moment. I think that's a great introduction uh, just to set the stage. Rick, I wonder what you would add to Mike's discussion of Justice Kennedy's majority opinion. He did indeed rely on the liberty clause of the uh, due process clause, but he also talked about the equal protection clause. Tell us about the relationship between the liberty and equality holdings in Justice Kennedy's decision, how you would describe uh, the holding, and uh, whether or not you agree with it. Well, I think Michael gave a beautiful description of the majority opinion by Justice Kennedy, but also the larger uh, sort of arc of constitutional history uh, behind that opinion. Um, and I think that Justice Kennedy's majority opinion, uh, in many ways, was a, a more honest way as a constitutional matter for resolving the case if the court was going to hold uh, that it violated the Constitution to deny the opportunity for marriage to same-sex couples. Uh, many of the advocates in this area had been pressing their case based on an equal protection or equality rationale, um, you know, an argument that um, it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. It was a form of discrimination uh, against same-sex couples uh, if states permitted uh, not, uh, heterosexual couples traditional marriage but didn't permit same-sex marriage. Um, but I think ultimately the, the debate about this issue um, you know, is a debate about whether as a sort of, let's say, substantive matter, states have sufficient justifications to recognize traditional marriage without extending uh, that recognition to same-sex marriage. I think the, the equality arguments, you know, really do obscure what is fundamentally an underlying question about liberty, if you will, or political morality, if you will, 
you know, are there legitimate reasons to deny, to treat differently same-sex marriage from traditional marriage? And I think that really involves substantive judgments that you can't kind of hide behind an equality veil. So even though it was somewhat of a surprise uh, uh, in some ways to see Justice Kennedy and the majority rely on, you know, a basic substantive conception of personal liberty that they see in the Constitution, I do think it's a more direct way of confronting the underlying issues here. The difficulty or the controversy about not just this decision, but about the whole area of uh, individual liberty rights under the Constitution um, has been that uh, uh, many justices and others are concerned that if the Supreme Court uh, adopts you know, kind of too ungrounded a sense of the liberty the Constitution recognizes. Uh, and I, by ungrounded, I mean a conception of liberty that's not rooted in the text of the Constitution, not rooted in traditional, longstanding American legal or political practices, uh, that, it be, that, 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 that there's a risk that justices uh, will be sort of reflecting their own conception about what liberty ought to mean or ought to require in terms of political practices, legal practices, uh, and that um, the whole area of substantive due process, as Michael rightly said, has been controversial precisely because of the concern that judges will be too untethered to anything in American history or prior law uh, if they uh, expand upon the notion of due process or substantive liberty uh, in too freewheeling a way. So that's the nature of the dispute between the majority and the dissent in the case. Once the majority decided that the right way of resolving this case, if they were going to come out where they did, was to rest on some notion of dignity, as Justice Kennedy says many times in the opinion, or liberty, or freedom, that um, if that set of ideas is not grounded in American history and traditional practice, um, you know, what, what provides the constraints on where justices take their own conceptions of dignity or freedom or liberty? Um, for the majority, uh, you know, there's a profound enough uh, traditional practice of uh, personal liberty in the space of intimate relations, which they now you know, understand to include marriage between same-sex couples, that they're comfortable uh, endorsing the conclusion they reached in the case. But, uh, but I do think that uh, you can understand why this has been, you know, for more than 100 years, uh, a deeply contentious area of American constitutional decision-making and practice. Wonderful. All right. The issue has been beautifully joined. Uh, both of you have agreed that the majority opinion is rooted in a notion of substantive due process that has proved uh, both appealing to uh, liberal justices who want to expand personal autonomy, but controversial among conservatives who are worried about judges imposing their value preferences. Michael, I want to focus on Chief Justice Roberts's uh, dissenting opinion. He stressed that marriage has been traditionally conceived as ensuring that children are conceived by a mother and father committed to raising them in a stable condition of a lifelong relationship, seeming to endorse the idea that marriage is traditionally about procreation. Did you find that convincing, given the majority's uh, stress that uh, non-procreative uh, straight couples can marry? And more broadly, I want to ask you, 
Chief Justice Roberts said the Constitution does not enact John Stuart Mill's on liberty, uh, basically quoting a famous Justice Holmes opinion uh, in the Lochner case. In doing so, is Chief Justice Roberts questioning Justice Kennedy's holding in the 2003 Lawrence case that moral disapproval is not a legitimate basis for law? For after all, that was Mill's view and Justice Kennedy's view, but Chief Justice Roberts seems to be questioning it. Uh, what do you think of, of, of that uh, notion? Well, that's a complicated question. Let me, let me try to unpack Justice Chief Justice Roberts' dissent. It's uh, really a very long and very sophisticated, and, and for Roberts, quite a passionate dissent. Uh, it's interesting you note his view on uh, an understanding of the marriage, but he leads off the opinion by saying that this, this case is not about views and marriage. People can have different views of marriage. He says this is view, this case for Roberts is about whether the court can act as a legislature. His view is fundamentally that people can disagree about whether same-sex marriage is a good thing or a bad thing. He explains why he, there's an utterly, a completely rational uh, argument for the traditional view of marriage. Um, but the burden of his dissent is that these questions of policy are not for the court to make, they're for the people to make through their elected representatives. This, for him, it's a case about democracy and the ability of the people to make democratic choices without the court substituting its judgment. And then he does go into the history of substantive due process. It's interesting, the majority opinion does not pretend to rest its conclusion in any way on the original meaning or the intent or the traditional understanding of the text of the Constitution. It's not rooted in an objective meaning of the due process clause. It is rather this idea that judges legitimately can discover and create and then flesh out unenumerated constitutional rights. It's sort of an unwritten constitutionalism sort of thing. And this is the great dividing line between the majority and the dissent. And it's a 5-4 razor's breadth uh, dividing line that I think will define the public and academic and political debate over the judicial role probably for the next 10 or 20 years. And that is between whether it is legitimate for judges to expand the constitutional rights, basically to invent rights that are not present in the text of the Constitution, or whether that is a matter reserved for the people's choices. Roberts is quite emphatic on that point. Uh, it is echoed in the dissent quite uh, vigorously of Justice Scalia and, and goes on down through Justice Thomas's separate dissent and Justice Alito's dissent. It, it's interesting that Justice Alito's dissent does Justice Alito does not join Justice Roberts's dissent. Usually these guys are joining each other's opinions and saying we support all these arguments. It seems to me that Justice Alito has the strongest sense of a, a traditional view of marriage and is unwilling to fully embrace the idea uh, that, that you see present in the other dissents of being generally libertarian about this. Um, but that is the emphasis that is in most of the dissenting opinions throughout the Obergefell case, is that this is an issue that is not for courts to decide, and that is fundamentally illegitimate 
and in many ways dangerous for courts to just be imposing their policy views um, over and against the choices of the American people who, who can legitimately disagree about these things. Thanks for that great description of the dissents. Uh, Rick, I'm going to ask you about what you think of the dissents, and I, I want to ask you the same question about the harm principle and moral disapproval, even if the right to marry is not considered a fundamental right and is just a liberty interest, then there has to be some reason for denying it to gays and lesbians. And Justice Kennedy said in Lawrence that moral disapproval is not a legitimate reason. Are Chief Justice Roberts and the dissenters questioning that holding, and would they like to allow moral disapproval as a basis for legislation? Well, on the um, first question uh, and the comments Mike was making before discussing the harm principle, um, let me just say uh, that I, I think that uh, even for the majority of the court here, I suspect there was a strong reluctance on at least some members of that majority for the Supreme Court to get involved and actually decide this issue at least, you know, now in, in the particular moment that we're in. The Supreme Court had other opportunities to address the same-sex marriage issue, uh, and the Supreme Court had consistently passed on the opportunity. They weren't um, sort of grabbing the opportunity to decide this case. Um, and I think the reason for that is reflected uh, some in what Michael said and in uh, just Chief Justice Roberts' dissent and, and the general sort of problems about uh, what the role of the Supreme Court in democracy ought to be. Um, I, I think that um, some members of the majority thought it would be better for this issue to continue to move forward incrementally, gradually, at different places, at different uh, paces at different, in different places. You know, even before this decision, nearly 75% of people in the United States were living in states that did recognize same-sex marriage. Um, various states got to that point in different ways, some by judicial decisions of state courts, some by federal uh, courts uh, of appeals decisions. Um, and um, and I, I think a majority of the court... Or, at least some members of that majority, um, would have preferred to stay out of this issue uh, uh, at least for some amount of time precisely to let the issue develop, uh, you know, out there in different ways in different places. The Supreme Court's hand was somewhat forced on the issue by the fact that uh, one federal court of appeals, the Sixth Circuit, had gone a different direction than the other courts of appeals on this issue and had decided there were, the Constitution did not uh, require states to recognize same-sex marriage, um, and at a point at which there were conflicts in the lower federal courts about this issue, it became very difficult at that point for the Supreme Court to stay out. But I say all that to uh, make the point that I think the concerns articulated by some of the dissenting opinions um, were very much on the minds of some of the majority justices. Um, and they were, as I say, brought into the issue uh, in a way that they felt they could not avoid once the lower federal courts disagreed. Now, on your very interesting sort of very big philosophical question uh, about whether the American Constitution or, let's say, a liberal democratic society um, should recognize John Stuart's Mill, John Stuart Mill's idea that unless there is harm to others from the action of individuals, uh, there's no basis, no legitimate basis for government to intervene. 
a, you know, sort of a very strong libertarian principle. Um, I don't think the U.S. Supreme Court has ever recognized or could really ever recognize one side or the other of that question. That is, even though Justice Kennedy, in uh, the opinion that you quoted, the earlier uh, opinion in this area, uh, suggested that moral disapproval could not be a basis for law in a democratic society, mere moral disapproval, if an action doesn't involve harm to third parties, to others, it's very hard to really embrace that all the way down uh, in, uh, even in a liberal democratic society. There's a strong appeal to that principle. On the other hand, um, you know, there are deep questions. What is harm? What constitutes harm? Uh, is, does harm come about only if you materially injure the physical or economic interests of some other actor? Is that the only kind of harm a democratic system can recognize when it legislates? Uh, are there other kinds of uh, harms uh, that legitimately a democratic system ought to be able um, to recognize? Um, can the state not stand for certain sorts of, you know, substantive positions about uh, various moral matters? So I think you're raising an issue that, you know, has been very much at the heart of modern liberal democratic debate ever since Mill wrote uh, his No Harm to Others principle. Um, I don't think the U.S. has ever fully embraced that. I doubt a judicial system or a political system could ever fully embrace it. But there's very powerful insight in Mill's idea that we should be very reluctant to have coercive governmental power deployed in situations in which there isn't some obvious harm to, to third parties. I just don't think we can ever go all the way down that road. Great. Well, one more round on this extraordinarily important case. Michael, even if uh, the right to marry is not considered a fundamental right, the state has to produce some reason for denying it to gays and lesbians under the lowest standard of judicial scrutiny. Uh, what reason do you think is the best reason? Is it preserving marriage for procreation, as the conservative said? Is it preserving tradition, which the court has, in other cases, said is not uh, adequate by itself? What, what reason would you give under the lowest standard of scrutiny? Well, it's interesting that you formulate the question that way. As I read the dissents, democracy does not always even have to give a reason. I mean, it's a sweeping embrace of the power of the people to enact their policy preferences into law, whether judges view them as rational or reasonable or not. That said, the, uh, the dissenters offer a number of justifications. The one that, that I think appeals even to libertarians um, and especially to conservatives, the strongest, is that the idea of same-sex marriage is really very new. Prior to 15 years ago, this was unheard of in the traditional view of marriage as a union between man and woman for the purpose of creating a stable family structure, primarily for the raising of children, though extending beyond that, uh, is something that is extended to every human civilization throughout all time up until the year 2000. I think there's a strong argument for the rationality of that. 
I have to apologize for the loon whale you might hear in the background. I'm up at our island cabin in northern Minnesota, and the Minnesota loons <laughs> are serenading us as we're talking constitutional law. <laughs> it's lovely. It's lovely, and it's appropriate for our discussion as well. So thank you for that excellent sound effect. But just to con- continue the point, the emphasis of the dissenting opinions is that it is rational for society to be able to make choices about marriage that have conformed to the choices that have been made about the structure of marriage in the family unit for millennia, that there are rational, traditional reasons for doing it, that there's really no requirement of a compelling justification in sort of doctrinal terms, and that it is improper for the judiciary to simply impose a particular view of marriage on all 50 states. I I, I was really struck by uh, Rick Pildes' excellent comments and analysis um, in that the Supreme Court did not really, the majority opinion, did not really take seriously an equality argument, thinking that equality arguments don't get you all the way to same-sex marriage. The idea of equal protection of the laws is that you apply the same rule to everybody. Uh, Gay marriage advocates were not saying apply the same rule to everybody because the traditional rule had long been opposite-sex couples is what marriage is. They were arguing for a substantive change or expansion in the rule. And I think Rick is right that that really requires the court, in all honesty, to embrace an idea of substantive due process. And that, that takes you full circle back to the idea uh, that the courts have a role in creating new substantive liberties. Rick, the last word on this case is to you. You've expressed some skepticism about the breadth of the majority's substantive due process reasoning. If you were writing a majority opinion recognizing a right of same-sex marriage, what would it look like? Well, I don't think I meant to express skepticism about the breadth of the majority's reason in particular. What I meant to suggest uh, longstanding kind of constitutional anxiety about, and you know, you yourself, Jeff, uh, obviously have contributed significantly to the writing on this issue, is the general anxiety about uh, uh, courts applying uh, expansive notions of morality or liberty or dignity uh, that can't be rooted very strongly in you know, precedent or in traditional or past American practice. And this is a dilemma for constitutional law, of course, because constitutional law can't be based purely on past practice or tradition. Uh, or you know, we, we recognize the problems with that in areas like the, the Eighth Amendment, uh, where the court has been very explicit in saying that the cruel and unusual punishment clause of the Eighth Amendment has to be interpreted not with references with reference solely to the practices that were thought to be cruel and unusual when the amendment was written, but with some evolving understanding of what is considered cruel and unusual punishment in our times. Um, I think to some extent it's inevitable the questions about the meaning of individual liberty under the due process clause have to be treated the same way by courts uh, in the constitutional system. But at the same time, as I said, the you know, anxiety is um, how do we avoid a situation in which um, that project uh, leads courts to taking on you know, too central a role in resolving issues that are properly the subject of democratic debate and argument and resolution. 
you know, substantive due process, as Michael said, has been used in the past historically by the American Supreme Court uh, to uh, prohibit various forms of economic regulation that we now kind of take for granted as appropriate um, and have for the last 50 years or so. Um, and so there's a risk uh, about, uh, about judges performing this role, even though I think there's an inevitability about it. Um, you know, if I had written the opinion, I don't know that I would have used all of the, the language Justice Kennedy used, which reflects very much his own uh, kind of personal way of talking about the Constitution and thinking about the Constitution. Um, but, uh, but I think if you were going to write an opinion coming out this way, it, 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 it should be based, as this one was, on substantive due process, because as I say, I think that is really the heart of the question. Uh, and, uh, and, and so in that sense, I think it's a, um, you know, kind of a candid confrontation with what the real choice here that was before, uh, the court. Uh, so let me leave it at that. Well, thank you both for a nuanced and really illuminating discussion of one of the most important decisions the court has, uh, issued, uh, in the past decade. Uh, and now it's time for a word from our sponsor. Here we go. This episode of We the People is brought to you by The Great Courses. The Great Courses offers engaging video and audio lectures from top professors and experts in their field. This week we are plugging The Great Debate, Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution, presented by the award-winning professor Thomas Pangle. The course gives fascinating insights into the different perspectives and arguments that shape the Constitution and is very much in the spirit of our We the People podcast, which as you hear, are uniting the best minds on the left and the right and everywhere in between to discuss not politics, but the Constitution and constitutional history. The Great Courses celebrating their 25th anniversary has over 500 courses on topics like history, science, phot photography, and more. Watch or listen with online downloads and streaming via The Great Courses apps or on DVD or CDs. And once again, The Great Courses has created this thrilling limited time offer for our listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including The Great Debate, Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution, at up to 80% off the original price. But hurry, this 80% saving is only available for a limited time. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com people. That's thegreatcourses.com people. We now turn to the second of the blockbuster cases that the Supreme Court decided at the end of this term, Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. Uh, Rick, you just wrote a fascinating New York Times op-ed about this case. Can you please tell us about the facts and issues and what the majority held? Sure, Jeff. This is actually quite an interesting question in the case about how democracy in the United States works. The... Uh, Supreme Court had to decide whether voters in Arizona or in any other state that allows the same process uh, are permitted under the U.S. Constitution to regulate the national election process through the means of what are called ballot measures, uh, measures that allow citizens to vote directly on substantive policy kinds of issues. Uh, in uh, more than half of our states or so, uh, the option of what's called direct democracy is available. Uh, most of these states are in the western United States, by the way, but not just in the west. Ohio, Maine, and some other uh, states in the northeast and the midwest have the same process. And indirect democracy, uh, voters through what's called the initiative process can actually initiate legislation 
Uh, people have to collect signatures uh, to get a measure put on the ballot. If they get enough ballot signatures, uh, then the voters of the state vote directly on the substance of legislation or on the substance of a constitutional amendment. And what was done in Arizona is very, very important for the way democracy works in general, uh, because the specific issue there was uh, the vote by the voters of Arizona to take the process of drawing election districts for both the House and Senate of Arizona and for elections to the United States Congress, to take that process out of the hands of the Arizona legislature and to create uh, a commission to draw the election districts. Now, and the reason that this is such an important issue is that um, not just for districting, but for many areas of regulating democracy, you know, there's a tremendous risk, and we have certainly lots of experience with the risk having come home to roost, that legislatures will use their power to draw the ground rules of democracy in a way that um, isn't for any kind of general public purpose, for any common good kind of purpose, but to understandably, at least in the human sense, try to entrench themselves in power, try to lock in their own incumbencies and to try to protect uh, their own political party and their partisan allies in power by, for example, going, engaging in what's called partisan gerrymandering, manipulating the design of election districts uh, to try to maximize the power going forward over the next decade of the political party that's in control of the legislature when the districts are drawn. So the voters of Arizona had decided to take this power out of the hand of the state legislatures and create an independent commission to draw the districts. And the difficult constitutional issue that was presented is that the Constitution specifically assigns the power to regulate national elections in to specifically signs that power to the state legislatures in the first instance, uh, and then Congress can step in and take over that power if it chooses to do so. The constitutional question, therefore, was given that the Constitution gives this power to state legislatures, in the first instance at least, can the voters decide to take that power out of the hand of the legislatures and reallocate it in the hands of an independent districting commission? And the court divided, you know, very sharply, five to four on the question. Uh, a majority of the court reached the conclusion, I think consistent with some earlier cases the court had decided many decades ago, that if a state chooses to structure its lawmaking processes in a way that gives the voters the role, if they choose to use it, of directly legislating, that the Constitution permits this kind of process to be used in the states that permit it to regulate the ground rules for elections, including for national elections. The four dissenters said when the Constitution uses the word legislature, to describe who has the power to regulate national elections, that means just the state legislature, period. And even though states allow their citizens to make law in every other area, the states cannot permit their citizens to make law in this area, the regulation of national elections, 
because that power by the text of the Constitution was put in the hands of the state legislature. Um, now, my own view about this case is that uh, when the constitutional text was written, um, it wasn't written to deny states the power to give lawmaking authority, including over national elections, to their voters if states chose to do so. The word legislature in the Constitution was put there to say it's the legislative power of the state that sets the ground rules for elections, not the governor's office, the executive branch, not the courts, but the legislative power. And if states choose to give the legislative power to voters, then that's one form that's legitimate of exercising the power the Constitution assigns here to the states to regulate national uh, elections. I, I just want to emphasize the case is much broader than just about the design of election districts, because the issue here is, with respect to any area of regulating national elections, can voters in states that permit it take that power into their own hands, either by directly legislating or empowering independent commissions to do the work, um, or does the Constitution deny states and the voters in the states that option? So states and voters in states have used this power of direct democracy to regulate national elections, not just for taking partisan gerrymandering uh, options out of the hand of state legislators, but to regulate whether we have primary elections, who gets to participate in primary elections, how voter registration works, uh, whether we have voter identification laws. Um, on and on and on. So the, the, m any area of regulating national elections, the methods, the processes, the way those elections are structured, um, is implicated by this decision. And after this decision, it means in states with direct democracy, voters do have the option uh, through direct democracy of, of, of taking on any of those issues. It's not purely a matter uh, that's exclusively a monopoly of the state legislatures. Thank you for that wonderful uh, description of the stakes of the case. Uh, Michael, as uh, Rick just said, much of the case turns on the meaning of Article One, Section 4 of the Constitution, which says the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And Chief Justice Roberts' dissent argued that the majority's reasoning had no basis in the text, structure, or history, because there are 17 provisions referring to the legislature. Many can't be read to refer to the people more generally. And he noted that the 17th Amendment was adopted to change things. So if senators were elected by the people, not the legislature, um, and if legislature meant the people, this change would have been unnecessary. What do you think of Chief Justice Roberts' reasoning? And also, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in the Affordable Care Act case, was a purposivist, not a textualist. He tried to look at what the framers of the ACA meant. Uh, is he being more of a textualist here, and how do you reconcile those two opinions? Great question. Um, he is being a textualist here. Uh, I think Rick framed the issue in the case exactly right. Is The constitutional legal issue is what is the meaning of the word legislatures of the state as used by the framers of the Constitution at the time they were devising the Constitution. Um, I, I, too, am a fan of direct democracy. I like the idea of initiatives and referenda, and I, too, am a, a critic of the idea of partisan gerrymanders. It really is embarrassing to see state legislatures 
drawing their state legislative districts and their federal congressional districts so as to preserve the gains of their own party or to advance party principles and really leaves very few congressional districts genuinely in play for the electorate. So I like the idea of taking the power away from them. The problem is the Constitution says that the power is vested in the legislatures thereof, and the word legislature at the time used in the framing of the Constitution had a really specific and quite determinate meaning. It referred to the representative body uh, that enacts the laws for the people. Now, some of that has changed, and there's nothing in the dissenting opinions that would say that states could not for their own purposes, adopt initiative and referendum in a lot of circumstances. But when they are acting for federal law purposes, when they are devising federal law congressional districts or determining the time, place, and manner of elections for federal representatives, that's governed by the meaning of the words of the Constitution. I think Robert's uh, opinion is actually devastating in ripping apart the majority analysis of the word legislature. The majority really does not purport to interpret the word legislature, and its interpretation is not at all consistent with the consistent usage of the term legislature, as you note, 17 times throughout the Constitution. Rather, it's driven by sort of a policy view that this would be good to, to as it were, bend the meaning of the word legislature to what we think is good policy. In that way, it has a lot of commonalities in terms of interpretive method with the same-sex marriage case, in that the court is not so much, and it's the same block of five justices that reaches the conclusions in each case. It's not so much interpreting the words of the Constitution, but trying to give a policy spin to what it thinks would be a good outcome. Now, you, you raise a great question about Chief Justice Roberts' opinion for the majority in the Affordable Care Act case. Now, at the risk of boring hearers, that was a case of statutory interpretation involving the, what is the meaning of the term in the Affordable Care Act, an exchange established by the states. The Affordable Care Act provides for these sort of purchase of health insurance exchanges, sort of marketplaces. And it contemplated states setting up exchanges and a fallback power of the federal government to set up exchanges. But if the states set up exchanges, the participants in the exchange would be entitled to certain federal law subsidies. What was not anticipated in the Obamacare situation was that many states would actually decline to set up exchanges. They were not quite as with the program as everybody anticipated they would be. So the question in that case was what is the meaning of the word state? And somewhat to the surprise of many observers, Chief Justice Roberts, who is usually a pretty committed textualist and pretty good on statutory interpretation issues, read the term state to include exchanges set up by the federal government. Um, the, the interpretive approach that Roberts uses in that case is not at all consistent with his uh, the approach of his dissent in the Arizona redistricting case. Um, in fact, you could take the words of Justice Roberts' dissent in the redistricting case and write a wonderful dissent to his majority opinion in the Affordable Care Act case. So it's sort of head-scratching why he would reach that result. If there is any consistency to it, it, it would be this. Chief Justice Roberts is very concerned to protect the prerogatives of elected representatives. 
that where uh, the people acting through their representatives have made a particular policy choice, he goes out of his way not to disrupt that. And in the Affordable Care Act situation, he thought that to interpret the act to mean what it said would be badly destructive of its policy purposes. Now, I actually find that unpersuasive. Justice Scalia had an excellent dissent in the Affordable Care Act case, basically making the point that the purpose of the court is not to rewrite statutes to fix things that it thinks might have been done in error. You can actually make the same argument in terms of fixing provisions of the Constitution. And I, I generally think that's the better re- approach. The courts should not be in the business of rewriting statutes or rewriting constitutional provisions in order to effectuate what they might think would be the better outcome. Rather, those are choices that are better left to the people, interpreting and applying the Constitution and taking democratic choices into their own hands. Thanks so much for that, uh, Michael. Okay, it's time for closing arguments on the redistricting case. Rick, can you uh, respond to (laughs) Michael's many interesting points? Do you agree with Michael that the majority in the Arizona case was engaging in uh, loosey-goosey policy preferences rather than uh, appropriate uh, constitutional interpretation? And how do you reconcile the Chief Justice's uh, votes in those two cases? Well, I think that... uh the chief justice's vote in the in the healthcare case is is fairly easy to understand uh actually uh and uh the reason is that uh at least you know as i understand the uh the case uh there really wasn't any uh serious argument that you know congress had actually made a policy decision uh, to permit these subsidies on state exchanges, but not on federal exchanges, uh, and I think it's you know it's a long-standing part of American judicial practice uh, that statutory language is interpreted in terms of the problems it was designed to address, the context in which it was enacted, and I think that uh, while the Supreme Court has moved in a somewhat more uh, in a direction that gives you know serious weight to the text of a statute. Uh, I think that most judges, uh, including Chief Justice Roberts, including Justice Kennedy, uh, who uh, made up the six-member majority in the health care case, uh, you know, I think most judges still uh, don't believe that the language of a statute ought to be interpreted uh, completely in a vacuum by just taking the words uh, and looking them up in a dictionary uh, and just uh, sort of mechanically, you know, interpreting or just not even interpreting, just giving the words whatever meaning they might have in some vacuum. Uh, I think that uh, they looked at the words in the context of this huge policy program that was adopted uh, and said there's just no account uh, that makes any sense uh, of uh, the language here uh, that would uh, uh, lead to this bizarre uh, result that no one claims to have actually intended in the legislative process, that only the subsidies were only available on state rather than federal exchanges. Um, So I I think that, um, you know, I understand why the Chief Justice voted the way he did in that case. Um, And I think it it does also reflect, as Michael said, uh, a view you see that he has uh, uh, that, you know, sort of to some extent recognizes a, a more restrained judicial role when it comes to major national policy programs adopted through a contentious political process that has actually 
you know, come to some resolution on the issue. Um, you know, I, I think the constitutional interpretive issues are, are harder in the legislative redistricting case uh, for some of the reasons that, that Michael uh, described. Uh, the word legislature is there in the Constitution, and there are some places in the Constitution where it's very clear the words were written with an intent to not permit direct popular decision-making as an alternative. The obvious place uh, is the parts of the Constitution that say the legislature, in the original Constitution, the legislature would choose the senators of the states. Um, I don't think it's plausible to argue that the people through a direct democracy process, could decide that they were going to start choosing the senators through direct popular election. I think we needed the 17th Amendment to make the change that allowed for popular election of senators. And so that creates, uh, you know, a genuinely difficult case here about whether when the Constitution assigns the power to the legislatures of the states to regulate the ground rules of elections, um, that can include direct democracy in those states that permit it. Now, I think I disagree with Michael uh, when he says that the word legislature had uh, the meaning he ascribes to it uh, in, at, at the time these words were adopted. I think there's a, there's a good case to be made that legislature here meant in the Constitution the lawmaking power of the state as the state constitutes that lawmaking power, uh, and if the state chooses to put the legislative power, the power to adopt substantively binding law in the hands of the voters, uh, that there's no reason that the Constitution's framers, who never thought about the question of direct democracy in these terms at the state level, there's no reason to think uh, that uh, the framers intended that option to be off the table to the states. That is, the majority does make the argument that legislature in Article One, Section 4 means the lawmaking power of the state. Uh, and, of course, all of these provisions, as the majority emphasizes, were written in a context in which the legitimate source of authority for lawmaking was thought to be always the people and then derived from the people, uh, the representatives of the people in the legislative process. So, you know, the court majority balked at the idea that the Constitution, uh, you know, somehow should be understood without the framers actually making a decision, in the, you know, to, to understand the Constitution this way, to take the power out of the hands of people when, in the 20th century, it became both technologically possible to have direct democracy and also, you know, when it became politically um, endorsed, at least in some states, to use direct democracy for the process of, uh, of regulating in every other area. Um, so as Justice Ginsburg says for the majority in that case, um, it would be odd to think that uh, the one area where direct, direct democracy is constitutionally impermissible uh, is in the area of regulating the electoral process um, given that these states now recognize that it's a legitimate source of authority in, uh, of lawmaking authority in every other area. In light of the fact, it, it, it would be bizarre, in light of the fact that there's no evidence uh, that the Constitution frame, Constitution's framers made any decision that the one area where direct democracy ought to be off-limits is regulating national elections when states are given the power to do that in the Constitution. 
But as I said at the beginning, I think this was legitimately a you know a very difficult and close case, and and it legitimately is a five to four uh, divide uh, because it's uh, it's not a straightforward question. Thank you so much for that, Rick, and for all your great observations on this uh, and the marriage case. Uh, Michael, the last word in this historic term and this great podcast is to you. Uh, you, you just you just suggested that there might be a tension between the Chief Justice's uh, opinions in the uh, uh, ACA case and the redistricting case, and Justice Thomas, in his dissent in the, re in the redistricting case, accuses the majority of inconsistency in arguing for deference to state legislatures. He says, just last week, in the antithesis of deference to state lawmaking through direct democracy, the court cast aside state laws across the country, many enacted through ballot initiatives, and he cites the marriage equality cases. Here is my question to you. In these We the People podcasts, which really have an educational mission of presenting the best arguments on both sides of constitutional questions, we insist on a distinction between political and constitutional arguments, and we're urging listeners to educate themselves about the constitutional arguments that they can make up their own mind. In these two great cases, the districting case and the marriage equality case, do you think that the judges were moved by their constitutional methodologies and principles, or do you think they were moved as the dissenters in some of the cases suggested by their political preferences? That's a fabulous question, Jeffrey. And I do think that this term is distinguished by a real turn on the court, or at least a bare majority of them, usually bringing Justice Kennedy along toward a policy-driven interpretation of the Constitution and occasionally policy-driven interpretations of statutes as well. Um, when I teach constitutional law to my students at University of St. Thomas, I try to instill in them the idea that they should not think constitutional law with their politics, right? That their law should be something different from the politics. That the meaning of the Constitution does not necessarily line up with their preferred political agenda, whether it be a left-wing agenda or a right-wing agenda or anything in between. That the Constitution uh, sets forth as a written constitution, certain immutable principles that the laws laid down are firm, and then whatever isn't covered is left to the people to decide, and that judges probably, and students certainly, should not just read the constitution in the way that furthers their preferred political agenda. I think this term, the court is fairly subject to the criticism that they did exactly that. In the same-sex marriage case, I think that the best simple explanation of the majority opinion, and this is consistent with the way they wrote it as a matter of substantive due process, is that they thought same-sex marriage was a good idea whose time has come, and they joined the parade that had been uh, started by various states in saying that there should be a national right to same-sex marriage. And I really think that uh, an honest evaluator has to conclude that they just sort of made it up in saying that it was actually there in the Constitution. On the redistricting case, you see probably a milder version of the same sort of thing. I believe that a majority of the court thought that taking redistricting out of state legislatures was a pretty good idea. I actually think that's a pretty good idea, too. And so they were willing to take the word legislatures and really cast aside the original meaning of it in order to obtain what they thought was a preferable policy outcome. I think that's a tendency that exists in many people, 
Sometimes conservatives can be accused of it. Sometimes liberals can be accused of it. Uh, this term, I think the court can fairly be accused and convicted of reading the Constitution in various different circumstances in accordance with their preferred political outcomes. I think that's the what gave rise to the really quite vehement, passionate dissents in the same-sex marriage case. It gave rise to Justice Thomas's uh, uh, dissent in the um, in, in, in some of these cases too, um, uh, it accounts for the passionate split in the opinions in the death penalty lethal injection case. It's going to be, I think, the framing debate for constitutional interpretation now for probably so many years to come. Is it the role of judges to read constitutional provisions so as to effectuate what they think are desirable conclusions? Or is it the job of judges to read the Constitution in accordance with the meaning of its terms and only to invalidate legislative acts where what has been done is contrary to a rule of law that's actually supplied by the Constitution itself? Well, on that galvanizing note, I want to thank Michael Paulson and Rick Pildes for a truly illuminating and substantive discussion of two of the most important cases of a remarkable term. And ladies and gentlemen, I wanna thank you, our great We The People listeners, for having uh, been with us through this month and engaging in these constitutional arguments on both sides. As Professor Paulson said, our conviction in these podcasts is that there should be a distinction between political and constitutional arguments and that all of you have an obligation to educate yourselves and learn enough about the arguments on both sides, hearing from the best proponents of them, that you can make up your own minds about what the Constitution means. I appreciate your bearing with us as we uh, thrill you with some ads in order to try to increase our national distribution and also uh, want to say that if you support this educational mission that the National Constitution Center is attempting to lead, please do consider supporting the NCC. Uh, everything we do is made possible by your support. It's been a privilege to host these conversations uh, about the Supreme Court term. We will continue our podcast series uh, throughout the summer and hope that you'll continue to stay with us and learn about the greatest vision of human freedom ever invented, the US Constitution. All that is to say, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.